Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in the motorcycle industry right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. I'm Dale Spangler. And this week, our guest is Moto America chaplain at the races and founder of Raceline Ministries, Mark Merkel. This episode is brought to you by Moto America. Moto America is the home of AMA Superbike and North America's premier motorcycle road racing series with some of the best motorcycle racing on two wheels. Rewatch every round of the 2022 series and catch all the action from each race with the Moto America Live Plus video on demand streaming service. Or visit the Moto America YouTube channel for race highlights and original video content. Look for a complete 2023 schedule coming soon at MotoAmerica.com. And be sure to follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for real time series updates. Well, everybody, welcome to Pit Pass, episode 143. And uh, Dave, your suitcase is probably packed, about ready to head to Europe. What do you got going on this week? So you're heading out of town. Yeah, we've got uh, the largest power sports trade show in the world. Happens in Milan, Italy. Starts, uh, I think, about uh, Wednesday, Thursday next week. Uh, I'll be there early, kind of help our uh, company set up for the show. But uh, yeah. Looking forward to it. It's one of my favorite. I've been there many times. And uh, just the vibe that you get from this show, because it's so huge. And it's kind of the center of the power sports universe in November every year. So pretty cool. Uh, have you made it over to that show, Dale? Yeah, it's been quite a number of years. And like when I went, it was half bicycle. And uh, I mean, that probably dates me right there. But I went when I was at Alpine Stars one year. That was the late 90s. And then I went for uh, Smith Optics. In the early 2000s, went over there once, and it was, yeah, amazing show. I've never seen so many incredible booths, uh, the booth space. People definitely spend a lot of money there. And then, of course, that, you know, the bicycle aspect of it was, was huge then. So I would imagine there's an e a bike and e-motorcycle aspect of it to the show now. Yeah, there is. They'll, they'll actually allocate one of the halls to that uh, segment. And uh, it's just a great vibe. They'll get 800,000 plus people through there over the course of the weekend because this show does go public on uh, Saturday and Sunday. So that uh, really ramps up and you see the hardcore motorcyclists and fans and fanatics uh, all fuddling through uh, Milan, Italy. It's pretty cool and highly recommended if you're in the trade or uh, if you're just a fan of all things motorcycle. That is the show to go to. It's, uh, it's, it's on a scale that's kind of hard to describe because it's so large. But uh, it's where all of the OEMs attend every year. And, and historically, it's where most of the OEMs will launch new models. So one of the cool aspects of being there is you get to actually see some of these new model introductions live and uh, get to see it happen. So that, I enjoy that part, too. Yeah, it works pretty well with the timing, doesn't it? With it being in the fall for a lot of new models coming out. But I saw where it looks like they skipped 2020 because of COVID. Of course, that was 
you know, in general, a lot of these trade shows, it seemed like the whole trade show circuit was in flux during that time. And, uh, but they were back last year. And so it seems to me like they should be back to full capacity this year. Yeah, let's hope so. And, and uh, I had a friend uh, in our company uh, recently attend the Intermot show, which is held in Cologne in October, oh, yeah. Cologne, Germany. And uh, that one's a lot smaller scale. But the vibe from that show was that things are just not as strong as they used to be for that trade event. And I've done that one also. So it was kind of an interesting comparison to, to kind of see what we're headed towards, because he also did Milan last year when he said it was pretty much back to normal last year. So Kind of expecting that, kind of expecting the last time I was at uh, Milan was 2018 because I was out of the industry in 19 and 20 and obviously COVID in 20. So it'll be interesting for me to kind of see from the last time I was there to to where it stands today. Now, is that the show in Cologne, is that the same one that used to be in Munich? Yeah, I think prior to Cologne, it was in Munich, yep. That was a fun one. I went to that twice too and wow, because it was, it was Oktoberfest, you know, when they had it. So it was like, the real Oktoberfest. <laughs> talk about Great some, time to be in Germany. Yeah, there was some <laughs> shenanigans going on, to say the least. It's kind of like being in Vegas for a trade show. You know there's going to be some shenanigans going down. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Vegas and trade shows and power sports, there's one coming up in February uh, 2023, which would be the AIM Expo, which is the American version of, I guess you could say, our a largest trade show in power sports in the United States now. Yep. Um, and that'll be in, I'm not sure what facility in Vegas, probably the same one they've been at, but uh, largest trade event for the U.S. And um, I know it's bounced around the U.S. They actually had it in Columbus one year, which I loved because it was a short drive, but uh, they've been kind of bouncing back and forth between uh, East and West, trying to find a home. I'm not sure they have. I don't know what your thoughts are on that show, uh, the AIM Expo. Yeah. I mean, Vegas is always tough because I just feel like it's so distracting. And, you know, I went to it this year. It was back in Las Vegas at the main main uh, trade hall. You know, it was a pretty good turnout, but there's a lot of people I no- noticed a lot of vendors kind of talked about how difficult it was to get in and out of the showroom. It was really expensive. And so, you know, I could see it. it'll probably be staying there for a while, but I don't know. I think it'll relocate to somewhere. Maybe it'll start to go east and west again, like I think it's done in the past, but I'm not sure if it'll stay permanently in Vegas. And to be honest, like, I don't think a lot of people could take it or leave that place. But on that same subject, before I forget, the big news I, I saw, though, was Le Mans Corporation, which is the parent company for Parts Unlimited and Drag Special, these two of our largest distributors in power sports, have committed to confirm that they're going to return to AIM Expo, which is a pretty big deal because they haven't been for quite a number of years. They've been putting on their own kind of miniature trade shows at their own locations. And so for them to recommit to that, that's a pretty big deal because last year it was only Tucker was the main distributor, no Western Power Sports. So for Parts Unlimited, I think they're still the largest distributor to show up at this event. That really is probably going to open the floodgates, hopefully, for a lot of other brands to consider going. Uh, I think so, too. You know, they're one of the largest and also one of the oldest in the industry. They were uh, one of the uh, distributors that go all the way back to the Cincinnati days. But uh, I really got to wonder what this will mean in the end, because I know that Parts Unlimited has a very successful homegrown show, the NVP Expo. I think it's called the Expo, but NVP, uh, new vendor training that they do every year in their facility in uh, Wisconsin. That is a very, very good show for dealers and inter- interaction with the vendors. So I was really surprised to see that, but uh, good on them. I'll uh, definitely uh, see how that goes. I'm, I'm, I'm really wondering still about AIM Expo and where things are headed with trade events in the, in the U.S. Ever since the Dealer News Expo died away, I think that was somewhere in the 
2014-2015 era has never really been the same. And AIM, which I think was meant to pick up the mantle and carry it, has never really felt the same. The attendance hasn't been the same. The vibe hasn't been the same. So I'm interested to see how this next AIM Expo goes. Yeah, and no, I agree. I think it's they've had a, some struggles for a while. I think even with the formatting, you know, it was a lot more educational focused this year as opposed to, you know, product focused. But, you know, to go back to what Parts Unlimited's decision, I, I really think it's kind of like a in addition to as as opposed to a in lieu of their own shows, because I think you're looking at two different situations here. You know, like the AIM Expo to me, and I'll even read a quote that they had, you know, trade shows matter and face-to-face is the best way to do business in power sports. Couldn't agree more. Like that, there was so much, you know, reacquainting with people you hadn't seen for years in February when I was at AIM Expo. And so I think there's maybe not as much business being conducted at AIM Expo, but there's a lot of handshakes, a lot of networking going on that we've missed for so long because of things like COVID. And so I think part of their decision is we're going to keep our trade shows, which are super effective for selling. I bet they sell a ton at those. But then this Amex goes, we're going to be there, kind of open the door again, welcome ourselves back to the industry. And they even made the statement, you know, to kind of reiterate their slogan, we support the sport. And so I think it's a really good thing. And, uh, you know, like I, I was kind of on the fence of whether I would go back again this coming February. And I think I might go now if Parts Unlimited decides to go, because I feel like it'll be that much better of a trade show. Yeah, let's hope so. And uh, I know personally of vendors that have pulled out simply because of the costs. I know you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. And uh, that's been one of the barriers that they have to get over to kind of weigh that against what do they get out of it at the end of the day. I think a lot of smaller companies, intermediate-sized companies are probably in that boat where the larger ones, it's a little bit easier to justify the investment. But uh, there are some trade shows that happen outside of power sports in our country that are leaning into power sports a little bit. And I want to bring those up and mention them. Uh, PRI, which is Performance Racing Industry, which is a large automotive hard parts show done in Indianapolis every December. It's usually uh, first week of December. Is kind of leaned into power sports a little bit. And they're starting to draw some attention and draw some vendors from that world into the PRI show, which has an extremely strong vibe. It's one of the best shows I've personally ever attended in trade events. And uh, I think that AIM kind of has to keep an eye on that to kind of understand what's going on that's drawing some vendors to that event. It could be the facility, it could be the cost, it could be the logistics, it could be the location, because I'm a big fan of having shows in the Midwest and power sports because it reaches so many core dealers. Yeah, density. Yeah, the density, exactly, east of the Mississippi. There's also the SEMA show, which is going on this week, which is in Las Vegas, similar. We actually have attendance there uh, with the company I work for. So that's another one that's kind of leaned into power sports and started to tap into some of those vendors. And it, at uh, SEMA in particular, you see a lot of UTV and side-by-side type business. So it's interesting to see how, how this dynamic is developing in the U.S. ever since the Dealer News Expo went away. And uh, I'm really interested to see if AIM is going to pick up that difference and, and become a very, very strong platform. Is, there, is it going to continue to be somewhat eh, mediocre uh, how it's been uh, ever since it launched, I think, in what, 2014, I think, is when it started? Yeah, I think somewhere around there. Yeah. I think it looks bright, though. The future for me, like seeing that Parts Unlimited you know, press release to me was kind of like, wow, that was pretty big news because it's been quite a while since they've even been to one of those. And so for them to be able to even consider it, you know, it definitely shows a a little bit of a change in their outlook. So cool to see. I think trade shows might finally be coming back. <laughs> yeah, it would be it would be nice to get that normalcy back in the industry. And I think maybe what's driving it is the chairman of the board, Paul Langley, for uh, Parts Unlimited. He is a hardcore power sports guy. 
And uh, just so you know, Dale, he is a huge Royal Enfield fan. He's English and he loves the brand. He and I have talked about that brand quite a bit. And uh, he's a really good guy. Didn't he work at SNS? Uh, he was with SNS. He left SNS to uh, become chairman for uh, Parts Unlimited. So he may be driving this just because of his enth- his enthusiasm and his belief in exactly the things you talked about, which was the face to face, the handshakes, the relationships, and the building of trust amongst your uh, peers in the industry. So Paul is a big fan of that, and I I believe he's maybe the driver behind it. Nice. Well, something else I thought I'd point out, like that I saw over the weekend, uh, the AMA had their uh, Motorcycle Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and they uh, inducted uh, six different honorees this year in 2022, the class of 2022, they'll call it. Kenny Coolbeth, uh, flat tracker, Greg Hancock, amazing speedway racer. I think he's a multi-world champion in speedway, one of the few Americans to ever do that. A woman named Effie Hotchkiss, who I haven't heard of. She was the first woman to ride her motorcycle transcontinental. I think she went from the East Coast to the West Coast and then rode it back to the East Coast. So she was the first woman to do that. Uh, Then there's Sandy Kosman, who owned a seat company, which I wasn't familiar with. Maybe you are familiar with it, Dave. And then two other, Ben Spees, who was AMA Superbike Champion and, and World Superbike Champion. And then last but not least, the scrub master, James Bubba Stewart, gets into the Hall of Fame. And I actually watched his little Instagram interview, and wow, it was cool to see him. He got pretty choked up when he get, got up to go give his speech for his award this past weekend. Did you see that, Dave? I did, I did. And I'm a huge James Stewart fan, having seen him race, which is, uh, gosh, I, I was so lucky to be able to do that uh, over the course of his career and, and see him go at it with Carmichael and it was like watching two boxers fight. And uh, the man transcends the sport. He brought it to another level with his skill and uh, got nothing but mad respect for James Stewart just for the things he did, which includes an undefeated season, which after Carmichael did it twice, which is pretty amazing in itself. Yeah. Everybody said, well, that'll never happen again. And then 2008 rolled around and Stewart did it, man. 24 and 0, just amazing. I think about when I go out on the racetrack, I'm happy to get one lap without making a mistake. And he did a whole season and didn't make a mistake. And uh, it's 24 or 30 minute motos. That's a lot. It, it's just amazing. <laughs> James definitely changed our sport all for the better. He had a rough go of it. He had some rough times with people, the way he was treated unfairly. And, um, he came through it in the end. So hats off to James and, and the other five folks. Kenny Coolbeth, three-time flat check champion, all-around good guy. Uh, I worked indirectly with him supplying some components for his race bikes in years past and definitely one of the class guys of the field. I, I honestly don't know much about Greg Hancock other than he was a four-time world speedway champion. So and it says a lot right there, right? Yep. And I, like you, I knew nothing about Effie Hodgkiss, but it's an interesting story. And uh, what she did at the time she did it on the motorcycle she did it on, Yeah, that's a story in itself. Anybody who took a motorcycle on the roads, what you could call roads back in those times, and took them cross country is just, <laughs> that's basically a trail ride from coast to coast. No doubt. Sandy Cosman was a wheel manufacturer and a chassis person for just about all kinds of racing. And a lot of people, I think, used his components to great success, companies like Vance and Hines. So just by all means, uh, a fabricator extraordinaire and uh, Ben Spees winning championships in Superbike, Superstock, Formula Extreme and World Superbike is, I think his scorecard is uh, just goes, goes to show why he's in the uh, AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame. You think anybody, to go back to Stewart, you think anybody now in this period of racing, anybody will ever do that again? A perfect season? I, I don't think so, personally. 
But you don't ever want to say never because yeah. I think we, when we said it after uh, Carmichael did it once and then he turned around and did it again. And then Stuart came along and said, oh, yeah, hold my beer. Yeah. It's definitely a very competitive. There's a lot of parity in, in that sport. So uh, I see it less likely to happen now than ever. When you think about the dominating year that Tomac had winning the Supercross Championship, winning outdoors, the chance that he could go perfect over the course of one season just doesn't seem possible. Yeah. So I, I'd have to predict no, but been wrong before, right? Yeah, I'm with you, though. I think it's definitely changed quite a bit. I feel like back then when Carmichael and Stewart did it, they were that much better than the rest of the field, whereas now there's, you know, there's at least, there's at least four or five guys that can, you know, that can go that speed. Maybe only two in some cases in outdoors, but in Supercross, it's even tighter, I think. So, yeah, pretty cool. But, you know, before I close up on that, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, they also did honor the memories of some uh, Hall of Famers who have recently passed away. Uh, Wes Cooley, I believe he was a road racer too. Ed Fisher, I'm not familiar with. Bobby Hill, Preston Petty, who invented the plastic front fender, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, Loretta Lynn's who's been a big part of our lives, Dave, going down to her ranch every August. And so she passed away this this year. And uh, yeah, good for the AMA to keep doing that. I know they had a couple struggles of, with that you know, in Hall of Fame induction ceremony, keeping it going. I think they might have skipped one year. Maybe not, but great thing they do every year and uh, cool to see uh, the people that got inducted this year. So speaking of these names and riders, let's, let's talk motocross just because you and I are former racers. Um, top five racers in motocross over uh i know course of history who who would be your top five well that's a tough one put me i'll put you on the spot put me right on because when you when you start talking james stewart ricky carmichael's and eli tomax those names start to go oh well who was the top five yeah. racer of all time i would i would go with rc number one for sure just for me if, I, if we're talking strictly outdoors because i feel like maybe james might have been better at supercross but i think outdoors definitely was carmichael was the man just because he would do whatever it would what whatever it took. Like he might not have had the best style, but he would just smash his way to victory whatever way it took, you know, wide open, off the bike, crash his brains out, get up, do it again. It just didn't matter. He was gonna win no matter what, you know. And so Stewart just had the uh, unbelievable style. He would do things that would blow your mind. And so I I'd say he'd probably be like a close second, but I I'd give I'd give RC the the nod over him. Yeah, I think most people would just simply because of his records. I don't know if they'll ever be broken, but uh my short list goes back in history a little bit, but I'm going to go RC because I, I'm a big fan of his, so I'm race a lot, and uh, nobody could do what he did. But I'm going to say Bob Hanna was second because he was a man who helped change the sport. David Bailey, Ricky Johnson, and then James Stewart. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I forgot David Bailey for sure because he's definitely one of my idols, someone that I always tried to emulate when I was riding, you know, his riding style. And so that was who I modeled myself, you know, him and Johnny O'Mara probably. And then, of course, Jeff Ward. Jeff Ward was another one of my favorite riders. I felt like he was just so smooth and methodical on the bike. He was a short rider, so he had to kind of make up for some things, like in whoops and different things like that. And so he just really made made do with you know what he had, what he was given, and he still was a amazing rider. And then, of course, he went on to do. I think he won a Super Bikers when it was on NBC TV back when they had that. Raced Indy cars. He did win a oh, race. Yeah, yeah. Well, one Indy, right? <laughs> well, and the interesting stat about Jeff Ward is he's the only rider to ever win a title in every class. 
125, 250, and 500 cc. So uh, that's a stat I don't think anybody will ever break because uh, 500s have been long gone since 1993. Pretty cool. Well, uh, a few other things here before we wrap up. Uh, I think you'll be out next week, Dave, right? So uh, in at that ICMA show. So I'm going to attempt to, I'm going to be going to the Enduro Cross here in Boise and I'll be heading out there with my recorder and I'm going to Try and get some interviews with all the top enduro cross racers and uh, maybe even like Eric Perinard, who who's the kind of creator of enduro cross. If he's there, I'll try and grab some interviews with with him and maybe some of his crew. And uh, other than that, not much racing going on, you know, other than enduro cross. There's a couple of other regional series, MotoGP finale going on in Valencia, Spain, where we'll find out who will be the next champion. Looks like Francesco Benaya has a pretty good lead. But there's a slight chance that uh, reigning champion Fabio Quartararo could possibly win it, but it's looking like it might be a Ducati year. Yeah, I agree with you. I was really pulling for Fabio all year, but I don't know if he's going to overcome this gap. Who knows? Anything could happen. But uh, Francesco, hey, good on him, man. I'd love to see Ducati win one. Uh, I think they're about due. Yep. Well, we're looking forward to this interview with uh, Moto America chaplain Mark Miracle. He seems like a fascinating guy and uh, looking forward to talking to him. We'd like to welcome to Pit Pass Moto. He's the Moto America Series chaplain and founder of Raceline Ministries, Mark Miracle. Mark, welcome to Pit Pass Moto. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you uh, for having me. And uh, maybe you'll tell me exactly why you're having me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I see uh, some of the people you have. I'm like, man, those are really cool people. Well, I think you probably uh, play a more critical role than, than you even realize, you know, like just from what I've, everything we've read already and doing research on you and, you know, you, you came highly recommended to come on the show. So, so let's, let's start off with you're in your 11th year in the paddock as a minister. Yes. So how did all this get started at the races? Oh man. Um, it's a great question. Um, it's a super long answer, but I'll try to keep it real brief. Oh, but, that's uh, okay. We got, we got time. <laughs> okay. I just finished my 11th season and I started in 2012. Uh, it's interesting. I was talking to a guy about this last night because he was kind of surprised that I did not have a racing background. I did not grow up in racing or around it, but I was around motorcycles, which I loved. Never had a motorcycle until after I got married. In fact, uh, it was kind of my goal to when I got married, I would get once I had, you know, income coming in, I would get a motorcycle. And so about after a year, I was married to my wife, Dawn, and uh, I told her one day, I said, hey, I'm going to the Yamaha shop. And she said, well, why are you going there? And I said, well, I'm really thinking about getting a motorcycle. And she said, uh, over my dead body. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's what I said. Oh, no, because we literally had never talked about motorcycles until that moment. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and my life flashed before my eyes, and I thought... Is there a way I could get an annulment? Is there a way I can get out of this marriage and marry someone else? That is not true. I didn't think that. But uh, I thought, oh my gosh, all this time I'm like 21, 22 years old and I can't get a motorcycle. Anyways, uh, a year later, all on her own, she <laughs> reluctantly uh, let me have a motorcycle. But anyways, so once I got one, that's all I, I rode and rode and rode. I, that was my way of getting around for the next uh, almost 30 years actually 30 plus years. I just love riding motorcycles, but I was never around racing until 
my friend Kevin Crowther, who was at one point was the uh, director, racing director for Supercross for a number of years. He and I went to junior high and high school together. And uh, in 2009, I think it was, he got me into a AMA Pro and um, what was it? MotoGP race at Laguna Seca. And I was living in Bakersfield at the time. And uh, oh my gosh, I just fell in love with all of that. I had, I've seen it on, watched, you know, racing on TV, AMA Pro for years. I watched it, but that's about the only involvement I had until that weekend. And I got to go around and meet all kinds of riders and team owners. And I was just all in. And I thought, how cool would it be to take my love for God, my love for people and motorcycles and take that to the track? And I almost immediately laughed because I thought, how in the world would that ever work? That's kind of ridiculous. Just a dream. So told my wife about it. She got very excited about it. She did a lot of uh, kind of studying kind of on her own about uh, chaplains and motorsports. And she came across MRO, which is uh, Motor Racing Outreach. And they are uh, NASCAR's chaplain agency and have been, I think, for close to 40 years. Found out I had a couple of friends who were on their board of directors that I knew. I contacted them and started talking about it. And two plus years later, after being in ministry at a church, a few churches for about 27 years, my wife and I decided to pretty much sell everything, give away everything, leave our full-time jobs, try to raise some money and go to Weira Motorcycle Road Racing. And that's what we did. I think our very first race with Weira was in April, I believe, in 2012 at uh, Summit Point uh, in West Virginia. And we've been going at it ever since. So that's kind of how it started in a nutshell. So it sounds like that, you know, that MotoGP experience that you had at Laguna was kind of like a light bulb moment for you. Yeah. And then I also read where, you know, your decision was kind of sparked a little bit by this Iron Butt Association ride that you did it, yet you rode on and completed. But then it was, you know, it took a couple more years for for the ministry to come to fruition. But correct, you know, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. You know, like so it kind of just started to sort of grow. You know, like your interest in two wheels. Yeah, actually, the uh, the forty eight and eight ride happened. I think the year before I went to motor that MotoGP race, and uh, I did all forty eight states on my ninety eight Suzuki Bandit twelve hundred. And I did all 48 states in eight days. So what was kind of neat about that is, you know, I did it for fun. And I did it because it sounded like an adventure to me. And it was. It was pretty incredible. But I also used it to raise money for a a homeless ministry in Bakersfield. Uh, They had lost their building and lost a bunch of stuff. And so they were trying to find money to get going again and use that money that I raised for that. Anyways. I had a, a lot of opportunities to do like um, newspaper interviews, radio interviews, TV interviews. And again, it was an opportunity to share about the ride, but I was also able to share, you know, a little, a little bit of my faith in God. And it was one of those things that I thought about a lot while I was traveling, you know, thousand plus miles a day, thinking, man, it'd be cool to do this and do ministry. But I, it just sounded it sounded selfish to me. It sounded like a golfer who would want to just golf every day, play this game, and tell people about Jesus. I mean, how does that, how does that even happen? And 
you know, then we just started praying about it and talking about it. Then the MotoGP MA Pro race happened. And I thought, man, you know, the thought happened again. My wife was all for it. She was super excited, pushing for it and pushing for it. And I just thought it was cool. I just thought it was not possible, just ridiculous. And so after two years of talking about it a lot, you know, talking about the two the two friends that I had that were on the MRO's um, board of directors, um, we just finally we just made it happen. I called Evelyn or texted Evelyn from Weira, who owns Weira, Evelyn Clark, and I told her kind of my dream, what I wanted to do, and she thought it was great. She said, I don't have any money for you, and I said, I don't really want any money from racing. I'll, I'll raise it out from outside of this. And she said, well, I can't believe you want to do this, but come on, you know, do whatever you want to do. And that's kind of kind of how it started and how that 48 and 8 thing, you know, kind of was the thing that really initially started me thinking about uh, racing and ministry and that kind of thing, because I had never thought of that before, ever. We'll get back to the conversation in one moment. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And it's, it's really interesting to me, Mark, how you've uh, kind of taken, kind of flash forward to today, but um, mm -hmm. your presence on social media and your podcasts is a way to reach people, you know, to kind of spread your message. Yeah. How's that worked for you and what's the feedback been? Is that something that's been very, very good for you? Is it good for you to fill that time or is it is it coming back to you? Are you seeing a return on that? Oh, man. It's just hard. <laughs> it's so hard to condense all this stuff because it's so... It's almost like too big to try to hang with it all. And some of my other chaplain friends, we've been talking about this uh, some over the past year or two. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, we just started, you know, we, when we started at Summit Point in West Virginia, you know, still after I think it had been four months since we had made the decision. And now we're at the track and we're like, is this really going to work? Is anybody going to even want us here? In fact, when we got to the, that first day, there was no welcome. There was no like, hey, here's Mark and Don from Raceline Ministry. There, where's New Chaplain? We didn't have any of that. No one welcomed us. <laughs> no one met us at the gate to tell us what to do. I think my very first uh, neighbor was Brandon Posh and his mom, their crew chief mechanic guy. And uh, we just started talking with them and other people and meeting people and the we would ask people, you know, hey, what are you doing here? What do you ride? Just trying to figure out this racing thing. And then they would ask me. And I had my full-on chaplain shirt and all this with my name, chaplain all over it. And, it's, and they would say, what are you here for? And I said, well, uh, I'm the Weir's new chaplain. And they're like, what's a chaplain? I said, really? You don't know what a chaplain is? You know, then I would explain what a chaplain was. And I guess after a, a few weeks of that happening, we realized, okay, well, I think we're right where we need to be. And that first year was difficult because I think people thought we were there to cram Jesus down their throat or try to force people to come to chapel services. And we just didn't do any of that. You know, we would talk about God if people brought it up, 
But we just came and we just decided a few things. We would not ask these people for money. We would not try to coax them to come to chapel, even though it got, you know, it would be announced, you know, the announcer would announce that we're having it. Other than that, we just served people. We helped them. We went to the hospital. We helped them tear down their uh, pit areas. We helped them set up. We just had conversations and talked and talked and talked. And then it went from people not wanting to look at us or walk the other way to the next year, people would call us and say, hey, Mark, hey, you coming to uh, the race next week? And I said, yeah, well, what's up? What's going on? Oh, nothing. Just wanted to make sure you were coming. And I would think, oh, okay. <laughs> I couldn't really wrap my mind around that at first. And then you know, after two or three years of, man, just, you know, taking care of people, counseling, ministering to people. And especially, I think the thing that really uh, endeared us to people was really going to hospitals and taking care of people, driving people home, driving people's rigs home, spending day after day in the hospital, then doing funerals. And then we would do weddings. And people were seeing this and we were coming back race after race after race, year after year after year. And, you know, chapel services started growing without us pushing it at all. I think they were just curious and uh, wanting to maybe know a little bit more about God. And maybe for once in their life, they were seeing people who were truly uh, maybe lived what they believed and uh, that's what Don and I at least try to do. We certainly are far, 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 far from perfect. But just try to love people like God loves us as best as we can. And just been doing that for years. And then the podcast thing came up about two and a half years ago. My daughter actually approached it to me. And I, you know, believe it or not, I had been praying. I said, God, you know, we do chapels and we have these little conversations at the track, you know, it's difficult to have big conversations on a race weekend. It's so much happening with the racers. There's so much focus on racing, and that's what it needs to be. That's what it's all about. It's not about Mark Miracle and Chapel and God. You know, it's about racing. So it's difficult to have conversations. And I thought, man, God, if there's some other way that I can at least have available to people if they want to know more about God or know more about Jesus. And out of the blue, this was, I think, in January 2020, right before COVID started gaining ground, my daughter said, hey, why don't you do a podcast? That, guys, was the last thing I would ever want to do on earth is a podcast. First of all, I didn't really, I know what they were, but I don't think I'd ever listened to one. And she just kept kind of bugging me with it. She said, yeah, you could uh, record your chapel services, put that on your podcast. You could do like a Bible study if you wanted. Hey, and you could even do uh, race interviews with racers. And that that right there caught my attention a little bit. And I got thinking about it a little bit more. And that next month, February, I spent three or four grand on equipment. And because <laughs> this was a funny story. So the reason I spent three or four grand was because someone was going to raise money for us. And I kept saying, you know what? I love that and we need money. But and you don't have to do that. And I'm trying to talk them out of it, and they wouldn't have it. And I said, "All right, well, just go for it." And they said, "We think we can give you ten. We think we can raise ten thousand dollars." And I thought, "Oh man, that would be huge." So I go out, spend three or four thousand dollars on equipment, 
And then I would say at least a week after that or two, uh, they let me know that they weren't going to do that. <laughs> so I was stuck. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Anyways, someone else stepped up some crazy situation and ended up paying for all of that stuff. So that was really cool. But anyways, started the podcast. And I mean, it's not huge. I don't think it is. I think I've been as high as six in the ratings in the Christian category in Potomatic. But when I first started, I was like 1,500 in Christian, like 10,000th overall. <laughs> and uh, I just kept plugging away because I was learning so much. I thought, man, if, if this podcast thing doesn't go anywhere, I'm learning and I'm getting to sit down with people and interviewing them and hearing about their life. I mean, it's just so cool. I'll, I'll tell you this last thing for whatever it's worth. I just had an interview with someone and I try in the interviews, I really don't make those about God at all unless they bring it up. Well, this guy brought it up. He said, why do you do what you do? And I said, well, I do it because I love people. I love being around the racing. I love being around motorcycles. I love going to the hospitals and helping people and lifting them up and encouraging them. And I love you know, counseling and trying to, you know, help people in any way I can. But I said, the thing that I really love most doing when I have the opportunity is to share with them how much I love God and how much he has changed my life and how much he means to me and how much God could mean to them. And I said, people always say, Mark, you're such a nice guy. You're so cool. You're my hero, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, you know what, if if it wasn't for God in my life, there is no way I would be any kind of chaplain at all. I don't even know. I'd be a mess. There's no question. And the guy said to me, he said, tell me how. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, tell me how. I said, tell you how you can know God? Is that what you're asking me? He said, yes, tell me how. It shocked me. And so I, I debated for literally a second in my head, do I do that now in front of everybody and in the track talk part of my podcast? And I, I thought, no, because that's not what this is for. When we finished the face-to-face -face interview that we had right there, we talked for another 30, 45 minutes about my relationship with God and how he could have one. It was, it was amazing. And that is what has happened with the podcast and with the Facebook Live chapel services, which I haven't even told you about that part. That's been another even more probably effective than the podcast itself. No, actually, I did see that and I was going to ask you about it, but uh, I, I did want to shift gears slightly sure. to talk about um, there's a lot of discussion these days. I guess you could say I'm air quoting. It's a hot button topic is mental health and racing. Oh. Um, and yeah. all forms of racing, uh, motor, motocross, uh, supercross, road racing, car racing, whatever. And as your role as a chaplain, do you find racers to be more open or reachable than, say, I don't want to say general people in general, but do you find racers to be more receptive in order to, you know, kind of set themselves on a path or straight to work out their, their issues that are related to racing? Yeah, that's a great question. Not real sure if I know the best answer for that, but yeah, I do. I remember a, a chaplain, he doesn't chaplain anymore, and he told me one time, he said, Mark, I left the track in the middle of the day, which I don't normally do, to go and visit a racer who had a, a really serious injury. And I just felt, since there was another chaplain there, this same person, he stayed, and I, I went, and later on, actually, 
when he came back, he kind of got in my face about it. And uh, he said, you know what, these, these racers, they're big guys. They're, they're strong. They don't need you at, you know, at their side, the, at the hospital. And I thought, what? And it kind of threw me for a minute. And then I thought, I am not listening to this guy because I'd already had my scary moments going to a hospital, seeing one of our, some of our biggest, toughest, baddest racers thinking, they they are not going to want me to come into their room and talk to them because they're just too <laughs> they're just too tough I guess in my mind and I tell you guys the tears would flow down their face their arms would come out and just embrace me in a hug and start weeping I mean a lot of them and it, it immediately immediately I thought okay all right yeah these guys are super tough but they're laying here in a situation between life and death, wondering if they're going to get back to their families, wonder if they're going to be able to work again, wonder if they're going to be able to race again. And for the first time asking me, okay, is this God thing really real? And starting to ask me questions about spiritual matters. So I would say, yes. I said, I think they're more open. I think sometimes they're, they're not quite so open until it gets real bad for them or, you know, it gets to where maybe they won't be able to race next year for whatever reason, whether it's health or money or there's no one to pick them up. But yeah, I think because, I mean, this racing stuff, this is serious. I mean, it's fun to watch. It's pretty cool. I've had a few times now to race and be out there with them. And it, it that really changed my perspective about racing, you know, I don't know how to say because I don't I don't want to make it horrible, but I did. Well, I've done more than that, but I did four um, funerals for racers in about a two month span of time. It's a dangerous, dangerous sport. And I think the guys and the girls know this. And so sometimes when we're able to talk and the discussions are serious, whether or not we're, you know, I'm I'm standing there next to him at the track or. I've laid down with racers on the track next to them, literally laying on my side while they're laying on their side while the paramedics are working on them, looking in their eyes and saying, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. I got you. You know, or we're bedside at a hospital, uh, in ICU, you know, whatever the situation, it makes these racers uh, become very transparent and very concerned about their future and not just physically, but spiritually as well. Yeah, it's fair to say they're probably not ready to I mean, I say use the word admit they need you or need the guidance until they really, really do. Yeah. And a lot of us are like that, right? We we kind of go do our things and do stupid stuff until, you know, it, the stupid stuff we do. And I'm not saying motorcycle stuff is stupid. I'm just saying me as a just a normal guy, we do I do dumb things until it's like uh, the doctor says, you got to quit doing that or quit eating that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, OK. I think I know the answer to this, but I mean, I feel like just from what we've talked about already, I mean, that, you know, a, a rider that having a serious injury, that's got to be definitely one of the most challenging parts of your job. But I also like want to know, like for you personally, I mean, it has to be emotionally draining, you know, taking on other people's mental and emotional states and trying to help them 
Like, how do you, how do you deal with that at the races? It just seems like a very, very heavy burden. It is for several years at the end of the year. And it's, it's probably started, uh, I'm going to say, let's say five or six years into it. I would notice that when racing finished, uh, like in November or when I was doing track days, they would end up maybe in November or first part of December. By the middle of December, I felt, and I'm not like this, I felt depressed, almost like I couldn't take another step. And I kept thinking, what is wrong with me? You know, I'll just kind of battle through it through the winter. And then February would start with racing. And then I'd be fine again all year long. Never feel like that again until the end of November, beginning of December. And I finally, probably three or four years ago, realized, I think it's the the letdown of, you know, every single race to me, there's a, a level of stress that goes with it, especially when the, uh, what we call the meat grinder class is the 600 It's the 600 guys. And there's usually it's the most, they could have 30 or 40 bikes out on the track and they are like the hungriest, craziest riders of them all. And you're like, Oh God, just get them through this race. You know, and very rarely do I sit and just watch a whole race. That hardly ever happens. But in the back of my mind, I'm hearing them. I'm hearing them going around the track, going, going, going. And there's this level of stress. Are they going to make it? Someone's going to crash. And if they do, how bad is it going to be? Is it going to be the worst situation? And, you know, week after week after week, that happens. So there's that level of stress. And then, then there's a year like we had this year. I mean, just this um, last week, uh, a couple of days ago, I did uh, a funeral for my aunt, and it was the sixth uh, funeral that I've done this week. Plus, on top of that, several other ones who I just dealt with, I would talk with over the phone that I couldn't make it to, you know, a racer's parent or, a, you know, um, we just had one happen two days ago. One of our weir racers uh, was killed in a quad accident on his property. And his service is tomorrow uh, and Wednesday. And I can't go to it because I have to babysit my grandkids and there's no one else to do it. So there's been a lot of that week. And does it weigh on me? Oh, man, it weighs on me a lot. The heartbreak of these families and, the, and most of these losses are like immediate. I, I would have to say the worst one for me this year was uh, Scott Bridey, who uh, passed away at Brainerd um, on, on the track, and he died right in front of his uh, canopy and pit uh, on hot pit in front of his daughter, uh, Darian. And uh, when I got there to the scene and we kind of slowly, surely figured out what was going on, and the doctor looked at me and just said, you know, I can see his lips. He said, he's gone. Then I had to go over to Darian, and uh, I had to tell her that her dad was gone. It's the worst. And then she wanted to go see him, and I said, Darian, you just don't want to see him right now. And she just wouldn't have it, and the doctor gave me permission to take her out there. So I took her out hand in hand, walked her to her dad, and she kneels there and caresses his face, kisses him on the forehead, forehead tells her, tells him how much she loves him. I mean, I mean what do you do? How do you, how do you handle that stuff? And, uh, it's heart-wrenching. Rode with her. It, it's heart-wrenching. And then, you know, a few weeks later, I'm in their home meeting her brothers and Scott's sons and his wife. And I talked to some of them on the phone, you know, 
getting ready to do the funeral and stuff. But that's heartbreaking at the track. And then you meet him. It's heartbreaking again. And then you go through the funeral and it's heartbreaking again. And for me, but a million times worse for them. And then the conversations that we've had with them since they're better, you know, because they're, they're wrestling through their grief and, you know, they're, they're getting through it one day at a time, but it's still, it's still heartbreaking. And then there's the other, I mean, I went right from that funeral to a pit race and we had two guys dying one day, two days after that funeral. So yeah, it's just for this. It's just been a year of that kind of stuff happening, and yeah, it's hard. Well, I what gets me through it, and I, I told him at the, at at Scott's funeral. There's three things that get through me. No question, 100. percent The number one thing is my relationship with God. Doesn't take it all away, you know. Still, we got we live in this human body that we all have, and it uh, it's uh, difficult on us. But the other thing is family. Family was super encouraging to me. And then the racing family as well. Very, very encouraging, very supportive, very helpful. And uh, those are the three things that uh, to get me through uh, those hard times. And it's what gets those families through those hard times as well. Well, I can tell you've very much been, you know, become an accepted, you know, integral part of the the road racing Moto American family. And uh, I mean, critical role, obviously people have, have, you know, rely on you these days. And so I have one last question though, before we begin to wrap up this episode and uh, it's kind of a two part question and um, what's next for Mark Miracle and how long will you keep going with your, uh, your chaplain services? Uh, Great question. I hope that when I'm 95, I'm rolling around in my electric, really fast souped up wheelchair (laughs) around the paddock doing the same thing I'm doing today. I don't know. Maybe I could, maybe I'm still standing then. I don't know. I don't have any other plans to do anything different. Um, I hope to come back and put a full year in with Moto America and with Weira as well, doing the same things. And I just feel like the longer I can do it, uh, the better I can get at it. And the more history that I'm able to see and be a part of, the more people that I can get to know the deeper the relationships get and the deeper those relations get, the better you can encourage and serve people. And uh, that's what I, I hope to do. I told one other person who asked me this question recently, I said, you know, if for some reason, if the economy tanked or whatever, we just couldn't do racing, maybe racing falls to the side for whatever reason, hopefully that doesn't happen. But if that were to happen, the only other thing that I could really see myself doing is actually being a chaplain for first responders. I would love to be a chaplain for our police department or the sheriff's department or the fire department or for all of them. You know, I love what they do and what they do and see is pretty tragic day after day after day after day. Right now, if I could do what I'm doing for the rest of my life, however long God gives me breath, this is what I would love to do. Well, it seems to me like you and your wife have found what you're kind of meant to do. You know, what, what it seems like everything I've heard just, you know, speaking with you today and uh, it's a great thing you're doing. And I, th- I think everybody in the Moto America paddock are, are happy that you're there. Well, with this last few moments, we'd like to, uh, if you have any uh, social media handles you'd like to share or websites and uh, where people can find your podcast, uh, now would be the time to share that. We have a website that's just simply called Graceline Ministry and that ends with a Y, not I-E-S. 
you want to go check that out, our schedule's on there. And if everybody knows, I hate to talk about this, but if you're bent to wanting to support what we do, you can do that there. And then uh, the podcast is pretty much available on, I think, most all of the podcast sites. And it's called Raceline Podcast. Raceline Podcast. So you can uh, check that out there. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I'm pretty easy to find. So if you guys need anything or need encouragement or just need to talk through something, I'm available. And if I'm not, I'll tell you when I am. Well, keep up the great work, Mark. And uh, once again, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Mark. It's an honor to be with with the two of you. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you. enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow Pit Pass Moto on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review our show. We'd really appreciate it. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog, listen to past episodes, and purchase your own Pit Pass Moto swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson and the production team at Wessler Media. I'm Dale Spangler. And I'm Dave Sulecki. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.